Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It is good to be with you. It's good to be in God's house today. My name is Chris McDaniel, the lead pastor here at Trinity, and I have a few announcements before I introduce our guest speaker. Uh, number one, if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you by our entrances and exits to grab one of our Sunday flyers. A lot happening in the life of the church, but I want to call your attention to three things. Number one, we have a newcomers meeting coming up on Sunday, one week from today after this service in our chapel. If you've been to Trinity for a little while or maybe a long while and have never checked out one of these meetings, this is a great opportunity to hear a little bit from our pastors and leaders about the mission and the vision of our church. We've done actually a lot of work in the last year year and a half or so and feel really excited to be able to share with you some of what we feel like the Lord has given us in terms of a refreshed purpose and vision and direction. Connected to that, um, also on Sunday, we're having a church-wide meeting. I believe it's at 5.30 in the afternoon. So after church, we'll just come back here in the evening. Uh, there will be a registration for that. So we'd encourage you to register. And so if you're a member, if you're not a member, but you're resonating with what's happening in the life of the church or curious about where we're headed, we would encourage you to sign up and join us for this church-wide meeting. We've got lots of uh, really good and, and hopeful things to share and to unpack together. And we hope to all gather here today uh, or a week from today in a celebratory space. Um, over the months of June and July, we're going to be in the Book of Romans. And out in our bookstore, we've got some resources and studies. We'd encourage you to either on your own or with a group of friends or uh, people that you'd like to connect with to pick up uh, N.T. Wright's study. Uh, it's called uh, Romans for Everyone. And it's a really great way, an accessible way to get in to the book and to really dive in and uh, make the most of it. So we would encourage you to grab a few friends or connected people in your life and do some study this summer. It's fun to study the Bible in Roman. Uh, N.T. Wright is uh, particularly, I think, gifted in the area of, of Romans. I uh, once heard him say that the most rewarding commentary that he'd ever written in his life was the New Interpreter's uh, Romans commentary, which is spectacular, and this follows on from that. Uh, now I'm going to introduce our, our speaker today, or preacher, I should say. Kathy Lorzell lives in Seattle. Uh, she's been here actually a number of months ago. We did a day-long conference called Redeeming Heartache. She authored a book by that same title with Dan Allender. Uh, she's a co-founder of the Allender Center up in Seattle. Uh, she does a lot of what we call around here uh, story work, uh, helping us look back in order to move forward with uh, grace uh, and with healing and wholeness and integration. We've said it many times around here. Pete Scazzaro said, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Uh, the way that we do uh, the, the work that we just heard Jason read from about how to live at peace is to be people who know uh, how we show up into spaces. Uh, Kathy is uh, expert in this area. She's gifted uh, in the arena of story work and therapy and helping people like us grow in our own ability to connect. Um, all of that, she's got the credentials. She's written a book. Uh, but Kathy has done um, story work with me one-on-one uh, -on -one via Zoom. And it's been a healing and restorative and transformational space in my own life. And so I'm just so thankful for your influence in my life. And she is, is a mentor and a connector to Jason as well and his work in our church. And I think over the last few days has spent time with a number of leaders. Kathy, come up and share your heart with us. We're so thankful to have you here. Let's give her a hand, y'all. This is the morning of technical difficulties. Um, I love the fact that you, 
worship pastor, you're out of tune. He's like, hold, please. It's <laughs> like, that's fantastic. Um, it's so good to be with you guys. And I, um, let me just say, my heart feels really tender. Um, and I might have to start crying. Um, there were a lot of kids in here earlier, you know, and some little nuggets are still sleeping with their mamas. Um, I've, I have two boys, a six and a nine-year-old, and um, when I think about the calling on my life or why I do what I do, um, when I see kids with, with parents, um, I think that's why I do what I do. Um, because we have an opportunity to be healers. We have an opportunity to be healers, um, a healing present for our kids, for ourselves, for our families, for our colleagues. And I truly believe that of all the things that Jesus invites us into, it's to be healers. That's what he did on earth, isn't it? Right? Like he... He touched people, literally. He, he touched people, and, and he healed their bodies. And, and then he addressed the systems that were keeping people in bondage, whether the system was in their own body, was within their families, within the culture, in the religion. Uh, his, his goal was to heal. Isn't that remarkable? The God of the universe came back to earth to help us heal. And what we have to assume is that God knew we weren't doing well, <laughs> right? Like, you know, he set up the covenant, um, thank God for Moses and David, but also, like, what a mess. <laughs> we, like, we were such a mess that a flood came. I was, um, my kids, you know, I try to raise them. I, I'm a Christian author, right? And my kids are like, you know, mom, who's Jesus? And I'm like, well, let me explain it again. Um, which, so, so I'm in my bed with my, with my nine-year-old, he's nine now, he, I, he's probably four or five, and I'm working, you know, all the things, trying to heal the world, and, and my son is sitting next to me, and, and, and I'm like, I need to get these things done, so I give him a tablet, because that's just where we are now. Um, you know, I don't do it all the time, but it was an emergency. <laughs> Whatever. So I, there's a tablet, and, and I had downloaded on the tablet this, like, Bible thing. So I was like, well, you know, if he's going to, like, sit and do be on a tablet, like, he might as well do Bible things. And so he's on the tablet. This is just, this is what it is like to be a parent. Like, I don't know what to tell you. So he, so he, and it's this thing where he can poke on things, and it tells him the story of Genesis, and so it starts with, you know, the creation, and then, and he's like, you know, and you, you poke things, and then it's like, you know, this is the story, and this is what God did, and he, you know, and so then he kind of flips through, Gen or the, you know, the, the creation story, and he's not super enthralled, which I think, you know, is sad, and so then he goes on. The next one, though, is Noah's Ark. It's on our nursery walls. But no, so my son goes and he's like, you know, it's like all the, and, and it's, a, it's, it's lovely. It's an animated version and all, you know, the animals two by two going on the ark and he's looking at it and I can see him kind of going through it and then going back and then going forward and then the flood comes and he stops and he looks at me and he's like, Mom, so God brought 
like pandas onto the ark. I was like, yeah, isn't that cool? Like two, two pandas. He's like, well, they, he, he brought two pandas, but, but, you know, what about the rest of the pandas? I was like, well, um, <laughs> they didn't make it. And he goes, he starts, he's a tender, he starts crying, Mom, God killed the pandas? <laughs> and I'm like, put it away, put on Paw Patrol, we're going to watch that instead, it's better for you. <laughs> Being human is hard. And we're not always doing well. So much so that God sent his son himself in human form to come and help us figure out how to be human without destroying each other. That's why he came. Yes, for salvation and a pathway to heaven. Whatever, I'm not here for that sermon. That's another one, right? So today we're going to look at Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, which I don't really understand why they're called the Beatitudes, like I don't, but there's, that's for another day too. That's a biblical scholar. One time, you know who Tremper Longman III is? It's fine if you don't, but he's a preeminent Old Testament scholar, one of Dan Allender's best friends. I'm on the road all the time with Dan Allender. I had to give like a nine-hour talk that included biblical references and all stuff in front of Trump or Longman. It was the most intimidating thing I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> Every time I would talk about scripture, I'd just look at him and be like, I don't know, should you be talking about this? So let's talk about the Beatitudes. Let me give you a little context. Prior to this point, this is what they considered to be Jesus's first public sense of ministry. He had been healing a little bit, but this is his first time really in front of people talking about God, about himself, about the world. Prior to this, in Matthew 4, is when he went to the desert to be tested. Odd thing, right? That the God of the universe incarnate needed to test himself. I love it. It's so human. Right? So he kind of needed to know what it's like. I think he needed to know what it was like to be in a human body so that he could help us figure out how to be healers on this earth too. He had to experience it first. What a humble thing for the God of the universe to do on our behalf so that he could help us learn how to love one another more and create beauty instead of destruction. So after he met Satan in a desert, which also, that, that could be a play on Broadway, I think. I would, like, I would like to go see that one. After that, he then called his disciples. This is when, according to Matthew, when he went back and called Simon, Peter, and his brother James, and John, all those guys, and said, come and follow me. I was, I was uh, listening to something uh, from a guy named Gaber Mate. I don't know if you've heard of him. Again, I'm a psychologist, so you'll have to explain. Uh, I'm not a theologian, uh, so I listen to other psychologists talk. 
Uh, Gabriel Mate is phenomenal around addiction, around body, around the impact of trauma on the body. He's brilliant. And he was actually talking about the disciples because he was talking about parenting, right? And so often we get parenting so backwards. We think we have to do it with an authority, authoritarianism, where it's like, we're in charge. My husband and I feel this all the time. Our kids are like, you know, we're like, turn off the TV. No. No. I would have never told my parents no, right? So I'm like, you know, trying to be like all good, you know, like healthy parenting and everything. I like, you know, haven't written a book about it. I won't because, Lord, that's the kiss of death. <laughs> that guarantees for sure that my kids are going to like end up in some really terrible place. So I won't do it. But Gabriel Mate is talking about this and he's saying, look, you know, look at parenting as discipleship. The disciples didn't follow Jesus because he was authoritarian. They followed Jesus because they were allured, intrigued, and there was something about him that saw them. There was something about the living God laying eyes on them where they broke, and and there was something in their hearts that were all of a sudden known and seen. And it was enough for them to leave everything to go be with him. That's incredible, right? And what Gabriel Mate said was, look, it's not authoritarianism. It's that they loved him. And he loved them. So after that, this is Jesus' first attempt to put language publicly to what it means to be a human in this world and follow God. I'm going to read this, and then you're going to say some things because it's still part of the scripture stuff. We're in an Anglican church. Love it. But I want you to think about this text as we read it. It's incredibly vulnerable and tender. And this as well as strong, right? There's a strength, there's, a, there's a, a fierceness to it. But this is Jesus' first attempt to put language to what it means. And this is what he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This is radical. And this is very different than how a lot of us were taught. It's the spirit of God, the heart of God. Right? We're taught about the idea of righteousness as like this like land in the sand. What do you believe, and do you have the right theology, right? How often were you taught in the church 
what it means to mourn. Not often. We think like, oh, I'm so sorry. Do you know that most conversations don't go past two questions? Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Great. How's your wife? She's great. Good. Did you see the game? Yeah, it was great. It was really awesome. Um, I can't believe they beat him. Right? That's the extent of most of our conversations. But what I know to be true is that most of you have things that are very difficult in your life. You have things that have happened to you. You have heartache that's going on right now. And we hardly ever talk about the fact that it's biblical to feel those things deeply and be able to feel them on others' behalf. To be meek, which is not weak. It's humble. It's available. It's tender. It's understanding that to be human is to be vulnerable. There is no one that I know who understands the vulnerability of humanness more than people who have suffered loss or illness. One day you're fine, and the next day you have a cancer diagnosis. If we actually come to grips with how fragile we are, how much it's never guaranteed that it's going to work out, the, the way that we misuse the Jeremiah passage, I don't even, I, like, I've blocked it out of my memory. Like, God works for, and good for those who love him or something like that. It doesn't work out. That's not the promise. Yes, you will be in heaven. Great. What about on earth? Jesus came to earth to minister and heal and be with bodies, be with people. Teach us how to love one another. So what if God is actually teaching us how to learn to feel? That's what this is. You can't do any of the Beatitudes unless you feel. You can't be um, uh, for righteousness if you don't feel the ache of injustice. You can't mourn if you're not willing to be connected to your own emotion. But for most of us, we have been cut off from our emotions. We've been told to man up. We've been told to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We've been told to work harder, be better. Or if you can't, then just dissociate and fade into the background and watch all the Netflix that your heart desires. Look, I love Netflix. I love it all. I just, I like finished Ted Lasso. I wept the entire time. There is something glorious about the fact that stories will make us feel. But again, are we available? We were made for perfect connection with God, with self, with others, and with the earth. That's what we were made for. We were made for Eden and we live in a fallen world. When we realize that we are living in a fallen world, we adjust our way of being to match what's available to us. Now, I'm going to talk about a theory called attachment. 
attachment, it's not my theory, someone else did it. But when I look at psychology, my, my sense is that all truth is God's truth. There is no reason to separate any of it, right? My psychology should match up with the Beatitudes, and it does. Right, so we're gonna talk about three major components that we all needed as kids, and your kids need now, and you need now. But oftentimes, we don't actually look at what we were made for because we, it's devastating to look at what we were meant for and then realize the absence of it in our day-to-day -day lives. Most of us, it's impossible to do, to parent perfectly. It's impossible to be parented perfectly. It's fine. We don't need to. There's a therapist or a psychologist that, I forget her name, I think it was Bowen, but said, uh, look, you only need to get 60% right. That is very good news. A lot of days it's 50-50 for me, how it's going to go with my kids. Really happy when it's 60-40. Right? But we don't want to look at what we were made for because it starts to reveal what we didn't receive. And a child will shift what they need according to what's available to them. So to the degree that your family created safe, loving environment is what you now you have come to expect and then create in your own family. So when we look at the Beatitudes, this is actually a very advanced, mature, emotional way of being in the world. Have you ever thought of it that way? You have to be, can we put it back up? Because I just, I mean, even just the first one. Uh, mourning, being meek, feeling hunger and thirst. I was working for 15 years before I realized I was tired. How many of you are aware of your own bodies, of your emotional needs, of when you're sad, of when you're tired, of when you're overwhelmed? The, realize, the, the reason you're not attuned to that is because you were never attuned to in the first place. So there are three components to attachment theory, and then we're going to go back and you're going to see how these line up. It's going to be a fun little magic trick. So let's go to the first one. Okay. This is what we need in order to feel safe and connected and loved. We need three things. We need attunement, containment, and rupture and repair. I'll get to all three, but let's talk about attunement first. Attunement is the ability to identify and attend to someone's need. Seeing someone's face and heart and offering them comfort and care. It's impossible to live out the Beatitudes without a capacity to attune and be attuned to. Most of you did not experience this as a kid. And if you did experience it, there was always a sense of, uh, it's not quite enough. And again, we will never be loved the way we were truly meant to be loved this side of heaven. There will always be a deficit. So I'm not talking about perfect love. I'm talking about good enough. But you cannot attune to someone else 
if you haven't worked through where you were missed yourself. In story work, we always talk about the fact that you can't take anyone further than you've gone yourself. So if you think you can mourn with someone else, but you haven't mourned for the heartache and the devastation in your own life, you're sorely mistaken. You cannot expect yourself to be aware of other people's needs if you're not aware of your own needs. I fly a lot, like, right, the old adage, like, please put your mask on if the plane goes down, which, you know, that's terrifying. But if it goes down, please think of yourself first. (laughs) Put your own mask on first before assisting others, right? So why is it difficult for you to attune to yourself? Well, a child shifts their need according to what's available to them. So if you were not attuned to, you learn to deal with a world where that wasn't available to you. And you learn quickly, no one's coming. So you spent a lot of time in your room. You distracted yourself with books, with fantasy, with playing, with really getting good at sports or figuring out how to excel in school. But you knew underneath it all that your parents weren't going to be available to you to deal with your complex needs. By the time I was 16, I was completely overextended in my life. I was taking every single AP class available to me. I was on two different sports, doing theater, music, head of whatever, leading the youth group. Like, well, what's that about? Healthy kids don't get to that place where they have to overperform in order to feel soothed, to feel secure, to feel okay in their own bodies. Well, what had happened? My parents weren't available for the difficult emotions. So a lot of you were raised in really good Christian homes. Me too. And yet, we're still struggling with addiction with anxiety, with depression, with porn addictions, right? We're dead inside. We don't know why we don't want to be touched. We're depressed. Our anxiety, do you know the levels of anxiety over the last couple of years, how much they've skyrocketed, right? It's not because, just because of the pandemic, it's that we we overexceeded our capacity to deal with our trauma because we haven't dealt with what's gone on in our past. And now it's flooding the plane. So attunement, if we need this, are you aware of where you didn't receive this as a kid? And are you willing to go back and do the emotional labor to grieve that, to recognize that? to be with the little kid that's still in your body, in your mind, that still needs that. We can give this to each other now. When was the last time someone actually saw your face and read it? When they looked at you and said, are you okay? And you're like, oh, I'm okay. It doesn't seem like you're okay. What's going on? You want to talk about it? Do you want to go for lunch or coffee or do you want to come over and go for a walk? 
our bodies immediately feel comfort because we know something of being seen where we're like, thank God someone saw me. And we're also immediately terrified because it's like, oh my gosh, someone saw me. (laughs) Now what do I do? Am I honest? Are they going to hold it against me? What if I actually tell them how much I'm hurting? Right? But what if we actually created a culture, a church culture, where this was the norm? Where we saw each other's faces and we had enough emotional capacity to have room in our bodies and our minds to actually do that work on one another's behalf. Oh my gosh, we could change the world for good. Right? So let's talk about the second one. Containment. Containment is an experience of feeling held, feeling protected, both in physical and emotional sense. So you can see it even in the idea of the mourning of the Beatitudes. What did people in your world do with your big emotions? When you felt deep grief, deep rage, confusion, anxiety, were you told to suck it up? Were you told boys don't cry? As a woman, were you told, you're too emotional? Such a drama queen, right? What did people do when they saw the depth of your emotion? Did they hold you? Did they create containment, a space where it was okay for you to feel that? You weren't going to ruin everything or flood the plane or ruin Thanksgiving or Christmas if you felt the big things, right? Was there anyone in your life who looked at you and said, oh, of course you're sad. Of course you're scared. My son Aiden, he's six. Um, he has big emotions. He has given me a run for my money. Because I'm like, you know, I know all this. And I'm like, oh, you know, because he'll, he'll look at me and just be like, I hate you. Because I took away the iPad. Right? I wish you weren't my mom. Oh, buddy, I'm so sorry that you feel so upset. It is hard to be disappointed. And I know that you love that game. They're really into Star Wars right now, so everything's... I I know you love the Star Wars game, but Chewbacca will be there tomorrow. Right? But it's so easy when we have not experienced containment, to offer containment to someone else is really, really difficult. When we haven't grieved how our big emotions were handled and how the fact that they had to go somewhere, they went underground or they came out sideways because now you're a rageaholic and you don't understand why, well, it's probably because you didn't receive good containment as a kid. But we can go back. What you do in story work is you go back to those places where there was original failure and you tend to those emotions and you relearn how to engage them for yourself and for others. So often in Christianity, we're like, you can't look back. Because if you need to look back, you don't have enough faith. You haven't prayed enough, right? You're being self-indulgent, navel-gazing. You heard that one? That's, that's a favorite of the evangelical church to talk about psychology. Just a bunch of navel gazers. Right? Can you hear the contempt? And underneath the contempt is, I never got that. Why should they? I'm fine. Right? It's so antithetical to the Beatitudes. 
Jesus was showing us that to be a man, to be a woman, to be a Christian is to feel deeply and to let it matter, right? So let's go on to the next one. The third thing that every child needs to know is rupture is inevitable, right? We talked about 60-40, 50-50. We will fail each other. Uh, going back to the ark, like God's not afraid of the fact that we're going to mess things up and he still let us lead. Like, have you looked at Moses, at Abraham, at David? Like, they really screwed it up. Like, it's not good. It, it, and there were consequences to it, right? And it didn't end there. Like, the disciples, like, we're all human. This should be the best news in the whole world, is that death is not the end of the story. So if it's not, why do we hide from the fact that we fail one another? Why do we hide from where we have done harm, right? But if you're not connected, and if you're defensive, and if you don't want to hear because you're actually really heartbroken and here, you don't have the emotional resources to do that sort of heavy lifting. So you defend, you deflect, you isolate. But health is being able to recognize, I did do that. I'm so sorry I harmed you. And it's not like, oh, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. Do you feel the defensiveness in that? Or, or the falling apart. Like my, my mom, God bless her, she lives in my basement, and I don't mean that in a weird way. Um, <laughs> what I mean is that I still am very deeply connected to my parents, and they have failed me, right? They are human. I have failed my kids. I will continue to fail my kids. I have two funds in our home. We have the college fund that we give to monthly and the therapy fund, assuming that part of my legacy will be to create more therapists that can deal with my kids when they need help understanding their mom, you know, who was on a stage talking about parenting and then going home and yelling at them. Like, that's a thing. Because I'm human. But when my mom, so my mom's like, you know, she knows what I do. She's like, will you ever let me listen to your talks? I'm like, no. <laughs> no, and here's why, is because she has not experienced this in her life. And so when she starts to confront the inevitable heartache of what it has meant to be a woman who has not done a whole lot of work around her own trauma, right? When, when she realizes the harm she's done to me, it destroys her. But not in a way where she's like heartbroken, in a way where she becomes fragile and falling apart. And then I have to tend to her as she's trying to apologize to me. Do you see, rupture and repair is a sense of like solidness where you can say, like, the price has already been paid. Of course you failed. Can you stay settled in your body and grieve and say, oh, I'm so, I'm heartbroken and I did that and I'm so sorry. I will do better. What do you need? Do you feel the difference? But again, you can't do that work when that wasn't done for you. 
You can't be a peacemaker if, if you're not willing to do the emotional labor of really understanding what happened. Do you know the difference between the people who are like actually peacemakers or doing reconciliation work and the people who are just like, oh, forgive and forget. That's not rupture and repair. You don't forget, it's still part of your story. And what does it mean to feel it deeply and still stay centered in your own body? It's a gift to be able to do that. And it's not easy. Breaking and restoring of connection with one another is probably one of the most important things, but without attunement and containment and the emotional work that you need to do to be able to feel things fully, you won't be able to do this successfully. And the world needs this more than anything else. We are fractured. How's Thanksgiving going for you? Hard for me, right? Our world is picking sides, and it's going to destroy us. Shouldn't the church be the people? Because we already know that death is not the end of the story, shouldn't we be the ones to be known for our capacity to love, to feel the deep feelings, to feel the emotion, to feel the grief, to feel the injustice, right? And be able to move through those with, with goodness, with calm, with peace, with kindness, with love. I think that's the invitation. Let's go back to the side with the Beatitudes. I think that's the invitation is to feel and, and to deal with the fact that what we feel is both beautiful and broken. And it's the whole gamut in between. Are your emotions available? If you have trauma, which by the way, I wrote a book about how everyone has trauma, so just to get to the end of that, none of us have escaped harm. None of us have escaped the fall. All of us struggle with lust and anger. That's also in the Bible, including your parents, including you. Your children will as well. So wouldn't it be better if we actually matured? I think that's what spiritual discipline is. Not making sure that your theology is right. Like, I don't know. Again, I'm not a theologian. There's a reason for it. I, I, I think that's dogmatism that keeps us safe in a world that doesn't make any sense and breaks our hearts, but we're not willing to be heartbroken, even though that's the first thing that Jesus said. We're meant to feel the weight so that we can heal other people. Your children need you to be more connected to your grief to your sorrow, to your longing, to your anxiety, to your joy, to your delight. I'll end here, because I think I'm at time. <laughs> Children, the world, it's meant to bring something of the revelation of God into this world, and God is beautiful. The world is beautiful if we are not willing to grieve and mourn 
and be available for all these emotions, thirst and hunger, we will not be able to fully engage and be connected to the beauty. You can't have one without the other. It doesn't work that way. So we are meant to be people who worship a stunning God who created us with emotions and a brain and a body. Where are you dead? Where are you dead? Because God has come to resurrect. So will you consider where you've had to deaden your soul in order to survive? And will you believe that we worship a God who is more interested in the healing of that than even you are? Your church does story work here. It's an incredible gift. I've gotten to come back several times and we'll be back again. But your church knows that this is part of what it means to be disciples, is learn how to love. And so you have an invitation to be able to do this work here. Stunning, right? That's not normal. So seek it out. You cannot fix something up here with understanding why it's there in the first place. You cannot fix your behavior up here and just decide, I'm going to love more. No, you have to understand why you weren't loved or how you weren't loved in the first place and grieve it and feel it and allow there to be integration and movement and mourning and grief so that you can be whole. I don't say this just so you can be happy. Like, I care about that, but I don't care about that. I care about how you set your table and how you are a presence for healing and beauty in a shattered world. That's what I'm interested in. That's why I do the work. That's why Chris and Jason do this work. Because that's the call. Thank you for letting me be with you and for being a community that is willing to do the hard emotional labor to love Jesus, each other, and yourselves.